For hundreds of years, the planet Mars has been the subject of heated controversy among scientists. Falcon Heavy is configured for flight. Tango Delta nominal. Five, four, three, two. Main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Delta rocket with opportunity. When you look at a planet as one little tiny dot in space, it, it really isn't representative of what's going on on the planet. It's a stretch goal. It is so audacious. We are one world, and that we are more connected than we um, give ourselves credit for a lot of the time. Hello, welcome to We Martians. I'm Jake Robbins. Despite being closer to us than any other sun-orbiting planet, Venus is a place that holds a lot of unanswered questions. NASA and ESA hope to start peeling back the layers of these questions later this decade as a trio of missions are finally bound for this hot planet, ending a long drought of missions. But despite this unexpected bounty of data, some scientists think there are still bigger questions that we'll be able to answer. Questions whose answers are important not just for Venus, but for the entire solar system. Paul Byrne is the principal investigator for one such mission concept that hopes to study Venus in situ from its cloud tops and be the first long-lasting mission to sample Venus from within. It's called Phantom, and it's a balloon mission that Paul and his team hope to compete for NASA's upcoming New Frontiers 5 call. But there are many challenges ahead standing in the way of Phantom becoming real, not least of which is a sudden change from NASA about the requirements for New Frontiers. I wanted to learn more about this concept and how it fits into the exploration of the solar system, so I called Paul up to tell us all about it. All right, so we're here today with Paul Byrne. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jake. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to have you on. I've been uh, looking for an excuse to have you on the show, actually. You know, <laughs> we, uh, we met in March at LPSC and got to talk a little bit, and I was like, well, I have to get Paul on the show somewhere at some point. Uh, and then I saw some, uh, uh, some stuff on your Twitter feed that was like, this is it. This is my opportunity. So I called you up, and you're here. So I'm very excited for that. Um, uh, why don't we just start with a little bit of, about you? So sure. uh, where do you come from? Where did you, uh, where did you go to school? How did you get into studying planets and, uh, and that? Yeah, lot? you bet. Okay. Well, so I am at Washington university in St. Louis, which causes no end of confusion when people are like, Hey, how's the Pacific Northwest? I'm like, I, you tell me I'm in <laughs> Missouri. Um, but you can probably tell from my accent. I did not have a Midwestern accent. I'm from Ireland. Uh, and my wife and I moved over here 11 years ago, uh, when I took a postdoc position at the Carnegie Institution of Washington in Washington, D.C., to work on NASA's Messenger mission, which was the first mission to orbit Mercury. So I got my undergrad and my PhD from Trinity College, Dublin. Uh, my undergrad was geology. So good old fashioned, you know, we had uh, maybe two entire classes, and I mean not a course, a class on extraterrestrial stuff. I think we did one on meteorites, and we might have once talked about how the solar system formed or something, right? It, planetary did not feature beyond the one we're on. Um, but I stayed at Trinity for a variety of reasons to do my PhD, and I actually studied, and this may be a surprise to folks who may know my Twitter feed, I actually did my PhD on Mars, Mars volcanoes, <laughs> um, so that was actually where I cut my teeth, um, but then came over to the US and worked on Messenger, and then I was at the Lunar and Planetary Institute in Houston, Texas for about a year and a half, working with Cassini mission data, and doing a bunch of Messenger stuff, the Messenger mission it lasted almost throughout the time I was at LPI. And then in 2015, I went to North Carolina State University uh, to teach 
uh, a, a variety of things, including structural geology, so how rocks break and how they fold and how we study that, and, and planetary science. And then a year ago, I moved to Washington University here in St. Louis, where I teach planetary science. Uh, and I'm also the director of the PDS Geosciences node, one of a handful of nodes that NASA has where all spacecraft mission data are stored. And we at the Geosciences Note, uh, generally we store all the inner solar system stuff. So I took over that role in July. I have to date not gone and deleted all of the Mars data. <laughs> we have like all of it here. I promise not to do that. Yeah, so, so you're you're alluding to your your frequent uh, um, jokes about how terrible Mars is. I like ragging on Mars, and, uh, uh, but you know what? Here's the thing: the reason I do it, the principle. Okay, well, so there's there's two parts to it, right? Legitimately, I do think that NASA's portfolio of solar system exploration has been biased towards Mars to an unreasonable degree for a long time. And I'm yeah, it's not a belief; it's a it's a fact. It's, I will agree with yeah, you there. Okay, right, yeah. I tend to yes, I, I I take the view that it is not it does not warrant the amount of investment it's gotten. Um, but the other thing too is I have a lot of friends who work on on Mars missions and rovers, and it triggers them when I go on about Mars. And as long as they can eat to respond, <laughs> I'm going to keep doing it. So that's why I do it. Well, as we do this interview, I'm going to shift a little over to the left so that my Mars poster <laughs> in the background on my wall there is very clearly and proudly visible. And uh, we'll carry on the interview, but uh, <laughs> no, that's good. It's fun. Your, your Twitter is very entertaining. Uh, lots of good stuff pops on there. And uh, I don't mind having a little bit of a, a cheeky back and forth here and there. So it keeps exactly. me on my toes. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but we're actually going to talk about Venus today. So right. we're going to talk about a different planet, um, uh, another uh, very overrated planet. It's just clouds as far as I can tell. So um, uh, but, uh, you're working on a mission concept for Venus, though, which is uh, very interesting. So yeah. do you want to maybe kick off with that what are you working on what's what's the the goal of it what are the big questions that you want to ask uh, with this mission sure sure I, i'm going to back up and give you just a little bit of context for why i am so i as so i describe myself as a venus evangelical and the reason for that is because like i said i had studied mars and then i studied mercury and i, and I do a bunch of things i have a paper on io and i'm lucky in exoplanets and really i'm interested in the processes that shape planetary surfaces uh, and that encompasses most things in the solar. I don't have any papers on asteroids or comets yet. I'm sure at some point I will. But anything is fair game if it's got a surface. Um, but about six years ago, I began to get interest in Venus because I attended a conference, like even more of a, a large workshop in Oxford in England uh, about Venus. And I really didn't know much, but I was interested and I wanted to know more. And I'd never really taken time to study it. And at that meeting, I was just blown away by what we did and didn't know about Venus. And really, since then, it kind of it piqued my interest. And I had done some various little things that had come across Venus before. But I, I, it was clouds to me, too. And it was really hot. And why the hell would you go there? And, and then over time, I began to kind of appreciate just how much we didn't know about it, but also how similar to Earth it was in, in its geology. That might seem kind of odd, right? Because I think you know, folks listening know that the surface of Venus is it's a, the temperature of a self-cleaning oven. And it's the pressure equivalent of about 900 meters under the sea. So how is it like Earth? But if you look at the radar images, we don't have regular images. We cannot get, with a few exceptions, we cannot photograph the surface from space the way we can from Mars or Earth or the Moon. Uh, but when we have radar data, which can peer through that thick cloud layer, we can see the surface. And there are features there that are weirdly reminiscent of what you see on Earth, more so, in my view, than anywhere else in the solar system. And maybe that shouldn't surprise us, because Venus is almost the same size as Earth. 
It's the other Earth-sized object in in the solar system. And in my view, and I and and I worked on the decadal survey, the, the planetary science astrobiology decadal survey that came out earlier this year, the final version of which is coming out in November. Um, and in the decadal survey, for example, it's it's clearly established that Venus sits at the interface of a lot of really key questions we have about planetary habitability, about the processes that lead to planets forming and how they get an atmosphere and how they lose that atmosphere and what's happening on the surface and all kinds of important questions. Venus is a singular place to go and answer these these questions, more so than Mars. Mars has a huge amount to teach us, and the, the single biggest benefit of Mars, aside from the fact that its, its surface conditions are relatively benign, it's no easy feat to put a rover onto the surface of Mars. But once you do, it will last a while. We've seen that repeatedly with different rover missions. Um, Mars has a lot to teach us, principally because it is a desert planet, erosion rates are very low, and it does preserve stuff from a really long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but Earth, Mars was never Earth-like. It's too small. And this ties into questions, and I know we don't have that much time, and I will happily come back and wax lyrical. <laughs> but one of our big questions is, you know, what's the role, for example, of a magnetic field in holding on to an atmosphere? And the canonical model is that, well, Mars loses magnetic field and therefore loses atmosphere. Venus does not have a magnetic field, and it has 90 times more atmosphere than Earth. <laughs> so I don't think magnetic fields matter the way we might think they do. Uh, and in fact, it's probably much more likely to do the fact that the larger the planet, the more stuff there is inside that can come out to replenish an atmosphere. And so people have proposed, oh, you know, th- there are some, you know, many hundreds of years ahead of us technology. Ideas, let's say, putting a big magnetic shield in front of the, in front of Mars between it and the sun. And so you could prevent the solar wind from stripping the atmosphere away. But none of that helps you if you can't replenish the atmosphere. And, and Mars's mantle probably can't anymore. It's too small. The mantle is where our atmospheres and our oceans come from. Venus is huge. It's almost as big as Earth. So in terms of understanding how planets behave, if you want to understand things like Earth's habitability and how it came to be, there's only one place you can go and study that. It's not Mars. It's Venus. It's right next door. Which, by the way, Venus is closer than Mars, and we have more frequent launch opportunities to Mars. And you know what? <laughs> for the last 30 years, this has been the era of Mars exploration, but in the 60s and 70s, it was Venus. Venus was the place that got all the attention. It just tells yeah. you there are fads, right? Generational scale fads. <laughs> oh, and, you know, things will swing fads, back yeah. and they'll go. And in 20 years, I'll probably be railing at the fact that there are no Mars missions, right? But because I honestly, I would like to see a balanced portfolio. Um, but but Venus is a place where you can you can ask a lot of really important questions. And so that kind of got me hooked into Venus. So I've been studying Venus for the last few years. And over the last few years, I've been involved in a bunch of different ideas of developing uh, mission concepts and and I've been there's lots of things you can do as a planetary scientist that that make this job really worthwhile and some of that is helping formulate ideas for missions and through a variety of activities over the last three or four years uh, in January I was asked to come on board as the PI the principal investigator uh, of a mission that is under development our mission concept I should say that's under development at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and that mission is a Venus aerobot. Now, aerobot is a fancy word for aerial robot. It's a balloon. So it turns out that as hellish as the surface of Venus is, and it really is bad, and we are many years from having long-lived rovers operating on the surface of Venus. I don't see there's a reason why we can't have that, but it's going to take many more years of technology development to get there. However, at between, say, 50 and 60 kilometers, the temperature pressure conditions in the atmosphere are actually much more like Earth. In fact, the only other place in the entire solar system that's like room temperature pressure conditions 
is the atmosphere, is the upper atmosphere of Venus. It's above the clouds. Sure, the clouds are made of sulfuric acid droplets. Okay, but you know we we can deal with that, right? We have stuff on Earth that's resilient to acid. That Teflon does that, so that's okay. But the temperature <laughs> and pressure is pretty benign. And in fact, in 1985, the Soviet Union flew two short-lived balloon missions, Vega mm-hmm. 1 and Vega 2. They operated only for about two days, and they were very small, and they had very limited instrumentation. They were really proof of concept. Think a bit like the Sojourner rover we had in 1997 on Mars. But the point is that we know we can fly a balloon to Venus. And so the idea of this mission concept is that we want to fly a balloon at Venus. Um, now, we call the mission Phantom. And the idea of the Phantom mission is that we would get a balloon, a large balloon, into the atmosphere of Venus. And we would stay there for several tens of days, probably longer, but we would sort of pitch it as a sort of several 10-day mission, tens of day mission. Um, and the idea is that it you would be passively carried by the winds. The winds circle the planet in around six days or so. It depends on the latitude, but you're of an order about a, a few days to a week. So the balloon would do several basically circumnavigations of Venus. And as it would hmm. move, it would it would move higher in latitude, which means it would cover a huge amount of ground, if you like. And yeah. by being in the atmosphere for that kind of time, you can do a humongous amount of science, much more than you can do from orbit because you're in the atmosphere, much more than you could do from a surface lander because that's stationary. And so you could do you can answer questions tied to the chemistry of the atmosphere, the physics of the atmosphere. But the atmosphere in Venus, it turns out, is and, and I am not an atmosphere guy. Like I did not start, I started looking at rocks. Now I gotta say, <laughs> to back up for a second, I don't particularly find rocks all that interesting. Although I, pebbles of the beach are pretty cool. Uh, but but like geology encompasses things like volcanism and asteroids and dinosaurs and all kinds of cool stuff. But it turns out that if you study Venus in particular, you can't really take just one aspect of it, say it's geology or it's atmosphere or it's interior, they really are quite closely connected. Mm -hmm. So for example, if this idea I alluded to a few minutes ago is correct, that the way you keep an atmosphere after it's being stripped away by the sun's uh, solar wind is by replenishing it through volcanic activity, well then you kind of have to understand what the atmosphere is made of, but you also have to understand is there active volcanism and and how much is coming out? What's coming out of the volcanoes? What's the chemistry of the atmosphere and how does it change on different timescales? Um, you also have to understand what's the rate at which the atmosphere is being stripped off and lost to space. What kind of surface activity is taking place? And how is the atmosphere influencing the surface? How does the atmosphere's properties chemically change what's happening on the surface? How is that manifest? So there's a whole pile of things. And the, if you're in the atmosphere, you're kind of in that perfect middle ground between understanding what's happening at the surface and understanding what's happening in space. And it kind of helps you couple the whole thing together. So the overall science goals of this mission are to understand what the atmosphere is doing, what it's made of, are there habitable conditions anywhere in the atmosphere, which is something that people have proposed. You probably know the whole phosphine thing, right? We're not going to delve too deeply into that, but we are. it's part of the thing we're asking. What is? What are the physical and chemical properties of the atmosphere and how do they change as a function of day and night, as a function of altitude? One of the things we're planning for this balloon is that it can change altitude. It turns out that if you put one balloon inside another, you can swap gas between the two. You can control your buoyancy and you can change your altitude. Mm. And that oh. allows us a huge amount of latitude, uh, figuratively, a huge amount of flexibility in determining what altitude we fly at. We actually <laughs> don't control our latitude. That's the winds or the gods of luck and fate do that. Um, we'll be passively carried by the wind. We're also planning to have infrasound sensors that will allow us to listen for seismic activity. And for other sources of infrasound in the atmosphere, including things like a volcanic eruption or even an a-, a comet or an asteroid particle breaking up in the atmosphere, uh, we want we're going to carry a magnetometer. We want to search for ancient magnetic fields that may be locked in the rock, like we found on Mars, Mercury, and the Moon. 
And then the idea is that the balloon would be accompanied by an orbiter, which would do three things. It would track the balloon so we would know where it is. There's no, we don't have the ability easily to measure north and south because there's no magnetic no field of Venus. So figuring sure. out where we are, we need, the, we need the orbiter for that. The orbiter also will data relay. It'll provide a, a means of broadcasting data from the balloon back to Earth. And it will also have its own instruments that provide a context for what the balloon is doing. So the balloon is taking very detailed but local scale measurements and the orbiter will be able to keep, uh, take much greater uh, lower resolution, but much greater spatial scale data. And so our science questions are all tied to what the atmosphere is doing, how it came to be, where it's going, what the interior is doing, what processes are active on the surface, and what processes are potentially replenishing the atmosphere, and what that means for how the atmosphere has changed through time. Uh, because that's ultimately tied to the the ability of a large rocky world like Venus or Earth to re retain habitable conditions or to lose them. They are the kinds of questions driving us. It's, it's really interesting the way you say that, you know, uh, coupling, trying to understand the, the coupling between the surface and the atmosphere and space, because that is sort of like, as I learned more about Venus this year, uh, that's one of the things that really stands out to me as, as a, what makes it remarkable is because like, we just don't have a good mental model for like what, you know, call it the first like 10 meters of this, of the surface, right? right like right, right above the surface where you're at 90 bar and you're at yep. temperature that's melting lead and stuff. And like, what is the air and the rocks? Like, what are they, what are they doing together? How is that interaction? Right. I mean, we see, we see our, you know, in comparison, paltry atmosphere doing a number on surface rocks here on earth, you know, yep. all sorts of surface weathering and erosion and all that kind of stuff. Imagine if it was 90 times that and, and right. The temperature, right? And, and so. it gets wild because the atmosphere, like, you know, we, we talk about there being a CO2 rich atmosphere, but at 90 bars and that, at that pressure, CO2 is closer to a supercritical fluid. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. there are parallels with being under the water. And yeah. water has a profound effect chemically and physically on rock. I don't think we have a good understanding of what CO2 at those conditions does to rock, uh, <laughs> which has implications for the physical properties of the rock, for also the chemistry of the rock. What does that mean for weathering rates? You know, we have some major questions to do with Venus that we do not have definitive answers for. We have a whole pile of circumstantial evidence that, that Venus is volcanically active. I don't really think anyone doesn't think it is. We've never had the capability of like finding a volcano in the act. We've never done that. We don't know if for sure that there are volcanic mm -hmm. there's volcanic activity right now. One of the ways we try and understand that is we can use some data from orbit to understand things like how rocks there are things you can look at rocks that may indicate how quickly they're weathering, which in turn might tell you something about how long they've been on the surface. But that's a completely, that's a non-unique thing. Um, hmm. But it does not give us the ability to actually look at small scales. What that means is we have no real idea as to what kinds of weathering there could be, what that would tell you about how long something's been on the surface, i.e. was a lava flow erupted just a few months ago. Well, you know, we talk about active volcanism on planets we mainly think of Earth and we think of Io and we think of volcanic activity generally. And one of the things that I specialize in is planetary volcanism and virtually everything that's big enough to be round has sh shows evidence of, of having volcanic activity. But much of that is ancient. And even when we talk about recent volcanism on, on Mars, for example, the youngest lava flow on Mars is about 2 million years old. That's nothing geologically. I'm sure Mars yeah. will erupt again, but the amounts are tiny and they really indicate the tail end of a really, really long tail of a history of volcanic activity. Same for the moon. Venus right, right, is, right. in my view, almost certainly erupting right now. <laughs> We've never really had the means to detect it. 
And so often people think about, oh, Io is so volcanically active. It's the most volcanically active body in the solar system. Well, Earth is the most volcanically active body in the solar system. Most of Earth's volcanism happens on the ocean floor, so we don't see it. There's no oceans on Venus. So imagine mm -hmm. having the ability to get into the clouds. You could peer through the clouds. You could listen for sounds of volcanic eruptions. My guess is, and this is the hypothesis, that thing is going gangbusters. The volcano is going all over yeah. the place. Yeah, yeah. Um, a balloon is an interesting concept. I'm sure there are a lot of uh, uh, listeners who are listening to this cheering because it's it's one of those like sort of like sci-fi things becoming real. You know, right, one of those right. uh, things from our our, our collective imaginations. Um, how obviously it must be ready enough if you're proposing it. But like, right. what is the state of that technology? Are we? What are the big sort of uh, things we got to solve from a you know a readiness level? standpoint sure so um i can give you a bit of a teaser we have a press release coming out very soon describing some really cool uh successes we had earlier this summer uh, in which we were actually able to to flight test for the first time a variable altitude balloon so keep your eyes mm -hmm. peeled for that uh, and i'll put that on my twitter feed when that comes out and we'll hope to release that in the next week or so um uh, flying a balloon of venus is no easy feat um one of the things that we've been working on is how do we make sure that we can control it? How do we make sure that we can ensure that it deploys safely? So the, the way mm -hmm. you, you may know your, and your listeners may know that conventionally we have what's called an EDL sequence, an entry, descent, and landing sequence. And it's what we use for rovers or, or for, for landers. For us, we have an EDF sequence, entry, descent, and float, <laughs> uh, which is just, I think is one of the coolest things. Um, but the thing about it, right, is that basically, and the Russians did this twice in the 80s at much smaller scales. Our balloon has to inflate whilst it's falling under a parachute. And then yeah. it has to sort of inflate, we use the inflation tanks and then drop those tanks and then move away from the parachute and then basically regain altitude right back up to its equilib equilibration or equilibrium altitude. It has to do all this completely autonomously. That's, that's challenging. Now, it's, I don't think it's sky crane challenging, but it, it is challenging. So there's a, definitely a lot of tech development required for that. And there's been a huge amount of work done at JPL far before I became involved with the mission to develop balloon technology generally. So for example, there's been a, a lot of work done by folks there to understand what materials do we need to make the balloon of. And so right now we're working toward an idea of having a Teflon exterior and a stronger material on the inside. The stronger material gives the balloon its strength, but the Teflon is what protects it from the acid. And you were talking about how some, you know, this is kind of sci-fi stuff. The balloon, it turns out, is covered in metallic silver coating because that reflects sunlight and so this thing looks like a 1950s weather balloon right like it looks like something you'd see in a comic from the 50s so it's this big silver looking thing and it changes shape depending on, on its altitude um right. so the, there's a huge amount of work being done there's a huge amount of work ahead of us to make sure that we can make this work but we, we know we can it, really the time is it just it takes time and money to develop different scale models to verify that we know what will happen when we scale the balloon up. Uh, the, the, the flights we had earlier this year were of a, of a subscale balloon, about a third the size. But a third the size is 1 27th of the volume. So when I was looking at that mm -hmm. thing flying, I was visualizing in my head the, the real balloon. I mean, it's, it's monstrously big, right? It's like 15 meters across or something. So there's yeah. a lot of work ahead of us, but it, the, the basics are pretty simple. It's making sure that we devise a method for it to deploy and we operate it safely. And that's where a lot of work is, is focused on right now. Cool. So yeah, you need money, you need resources. Uh, let's let's talk about that. Right, so this is okay, uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. this is um, this is a proposal for for NASA's uh, New Frontiers program, as I understand right. it. New Frontiers being sort of the the middle of the road size for NASA. It's bigger than right. these kind of discovery ones, but it's not the size of a 
large strategic flagship mission. Um, New Frontiers 5, which is the specific one I think you mentioned you were going after, that's got some history. Uh, You worked on the Decadal survey, um, so you kind of have been following this. This was one that was kind of recommended on the previous one, but never got to it. And now right. it's on this one and there's new context. Can you sort of walk us through sort of the, yeah, the drama sure. behind New Frontiers 5? <laughs> oh boy, is there drama. Jeez. Okay. Yeah. So basically this is how it works. Okay. So like you said, so Discovery is the sort of, there is a smaller one below Discovery, but Discovery is sort of the kind of the smaller planetary scale, interplanetary mission class that mm-hmm. people can propose to. And Discovery, like New Frontiers, is what's called a PI-led mission. So there's a principal investigator, a person at the top, and, and she or he decides what they're doing and helps, you know, they're like the director, right? They're the vision, right? They kind of pull everything together and, and they work with an enormous team of really talented folks. But the PI is the person who sort of says, this is what we're doing and here's how we're going to do it. Discovery missions, uh, they top out at around $500 million, which in absolute terms is a crazy amount of money. Isn't that much money for planetary. For a really planetary spacecraft and all the money to pay people's time to build it, it's not that much money. For Discovery, uh, proposers are free to propose to study anywhere in the solar system except for Earth and the Sun. So if you can think that you can make a Discovery class mission that will get out to Triton, which a team did in the last competition, then you can go for it. Or Io, or Venus, as it, as it happens. Um, New Frontier is a little bigger. New Frontier is about double. It's not quite a billion, but it's close. And, and the numbers go up a little bit every time there's a competition. Discovery competitions are held about twice as frequently as, as New Frontiers, which sort of tracks, right? New Frontiers is about twice the budget. Now, unlike Discovery, New Frontiers competitions have a curated list of, of mission themes. So basically, for example, in, in the last couple of competitions, Mercury wasn't on New Frontiers, which means you can't propose a Mercury mission. You can on Discovery, but you can't on New Frontiers. And even then, it's not even just that they're limited by destination. They are limited by theme. So, for example, this is we're looking now at the, the onset of the fifth New Frontiers competition. So there have been four rounds so far. New Frontiers 1 was the New Horizons spacecraft that ultimately flew past Pluto and, and Arakothan is now way out in the dark. New Frontiers 2, I actually get confused. I think that was Juno. And New Frontiers 3 is Osiris Rex, but it could be the way around because I can't remember. And then New, Fr- mm-hmm. uh, New Frontiers 4 was announced in 2019. That's Dragonfly, the nuclear-powered octocopter to Titan. So the idea is on that curated list of New Frontiers missions, there has always been, since its inception in the early 2000s, something called VICE, Venus In-Situ Explorer. So it's not just anything at Venus, it's Venus In-Situ Explorer. That is what it is. So there's an argument that if you were to propose a mission that was only an orbiter, let's say, it would not be within the call parameters. It would not represent an in-situ component. And so proposal teams have to get clever and figure out how they're going to do in-situ. Now, often when people think of in-situ, they think of lander. And it turns out that it's actually really hard to do a Venus lander. It's it's hard to do a Venus lander at New Frontiers yeah. money um, <laughs> because it will be baked. It just It's really hard. It's not a forgiving place to go. But in situ doesn't just mean the surface. It also means the atmosphere. And a balloon mission is a perfect thing to target the Venus in situ explorer theme. Okay, so far so good. So I came on board in January. Now, New Frontiers 5, there had already been a bunch of uh, what I call community announcements about New Frontiers 5. NASA had indicated several years ago it was gearing up to hold the NF5, we call it the NF5, New Frontiers 5 competition. Uh, and, and you know, as far back as certainly by 2019, we were getting information from NASA as to what the likely timeline would be. 
Now, there's a whole pile of things that factor into this. There's the timeline. There are rules governing where you can go, what the list of missions is, what the cost cap is, how much money you have, and often information on how that money is broken down by the different phases of the mission. So it's, it's quite specific. And when the final call comes out, it's called an announcement of opportunity, an AO. When that final AO comes out, it's many pages long with hundreds of requirements. I mean, these are these are big federal procurements, basically, right? These are billion-dollar-plus missions overall. When, when you actually, when you factor in everything, including things like launch vehicles, sometimes they get close to two billion. That's a lot of money for the federal mm-hmm. government to be giving people to uh, control of. So there's a lot of rules, including the mission list. So JPL, for the last two or so years, has been working on and investing its own money on developing the technology for the balloon and some of the instruments that we would carry under the balloon. And in January, I came on board. Um, like you said, I had been involved in the in the most recent decade survey. I was the chair of the Venus panel. So I became even more self-radicalized over the last two years in terms of why we should be exploring <laughs> Venus and what, we, you know, what kind of science we should do there. Uh, and we we on the panel, we on the steer, on the decadal, the steering group and the, and, the, and the decadal community generally said, Vice is an important part of Venus science. It should be retained in New Frontiers 5, and it should be retained in New Frontiers 6 and 7 if it wasn't picked in one of the previous competitions. It's that important. I mean, there's a bunch of other important places. There's stuff to do with Io. There's stuff to do with the Moon. There's stuff to do with Comets. There's stuff to do with Enceladus. So it's not saying that it's more important. This list is usually listed, and there's a statement that says, without priority. Often it's alphabetical, which means Venus is at the end. But it's without priority. They're all equally compelling targets. So we've been working for months and months, and, and many people I've been working with, including scientists and engineers, for years pushing for this concept. And we were gearing up for, to get ready for the proposal, which is the, the, the notional timeline is March 2024. So, so I came in January 2022. So the minimum two years you're spending working on these things, minimum, and in many cases, a lot longer before you propose a proposal. And the proposal is like 300 pages. And by the way, I should say, that's the, that's the first round of proposals. Usually <laughs> NASA picks like a, a kind of a short list to go to step two, the second round. And then you turn a 300-page a proposal into a 1,000-page proposal, right? I mean, like, it, this is a bit... And then NASA picks one, right? Like, the likelihood you picked is pretty low just in terms of the numbers. But it's an amazing experience to partner with brilliant scientists and engineers and 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 proposal managers and capture leads and all these people who help develop this vision and get on board it's been i've had the time of my life doing this <laughs> until about a month ago when the fifth community announcement for nf5 so there have been four already the fifth one came out we were expecting it and we were expecting it to to tell us the timing the money we'd have and the target list where you can go no one thought Venus wouldn't be on the list. <laughs> Venus wasn't on the list. It's not on the list. So we're like, oh, what? So this, this has caused quite a bit of consternation in the Venus community, uh, on my mission team, uh, on behalf of the, the Venus uh, Exploration Analysis Group, which is the kind of community-driven group that, that, that solicits feedback from the community for Venus and represents it to NASA. Uh, I'll... I'll all kinds of folks, including many people who don't do Venus science. Uh, no one expected NASA to take it out. We have not gotten a lot of specificity from NASA as to why it's gone. We have gotten some. And the answer is, and, and I'm holding my hands up doing air quotes right now, programmatics. Mm-hmm. So what that means is, because this, there's, there's this drama and, and, and the story gets more complicated. Last year, in the most recent discovery round, 
NASA picked two Venus missions. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and arguably two and a half, because it, about a week after those selections last year, the European Space Agency announced the winner of its M5, M is its medium class, so a bit like Discovery in, in, for ESA. And the winner of their fifth M-class competition was a mission called Envision, which is a Venus mission. Uh, NASA, it so happens, for reasons I do not understand, is providing uh, the radar for Envision. So NASA is actually kind of supporting two and a half missions. It, the two it picked and the main instrument for, for a third. Now, it has been 40 years since NASA has sent something to Venus to study Venus. So needless <laughs> to say, those of us in the Venus community, with the, in the community with the Venus band, we're delighted. This is terrific. These missions are going to revolutionize. Our, we're going to, God, we're going to get images. We're going to get radar images that are such an increase. It's going to be going from, like, from Viking from Mars to high rise from Mars. Right? It's going to open up, it won't quite be high rise resolution, CTX. It's going to open up a whole new world figuratively and literally for us. So I'm loving that we get these missions. But we have a lot of catching up to do. And the VICE mission is about in situ stuff. It's measurements and science you do by, by being on the ground or flying through the clouds. And none of the three missions announced last year even touch off those things. They're not designed to. One of them has a probe that will go through the atmosphere. It'll measure a few of those questions uh, and very important questions. But there's so much you cannot do with a descent probe. Hmm. Think Huygens, which was the descent probe that came off Cassini, to what Dragonfly is going to do, both at Titan. Right, right. So it seems that NASA has taken the view that, well, those missions got picked last year. Therefore, we've ticked the Venus box and, and the Venus community is sated and, and that's it. And we're going to move on and we're not even going to allow people to propose a Venus mission. They didn't say they're not going to pick one. They're just not going to allow it to be proposed. Because I guess the argument is that if they do allow a mission to be to be proposed, the amount of time and money it takes to do that means that they have to be at least open to selecting it. They have to be open to it winning. Right, right. So right. their so reasoning seems honest. to be, well, you know, <laughs> if we picked the Venus mission, that would just go make everyone go crazy because we picked three last year. Yeah. That runs in the face of a couple of things. It's been 40 years since we've had Venus missions. The Venus science those three missions are going to do, and I cannot emphasize enough how excited I am about those missions. But they are going to they are going to tackle some parts of a really big canvas of questions we have for Venus, and and the decadal survey, which came out after those selections were announced last year, decadal survey came out in, in in April, recognizes this. Vice is still there, in NF5, in NF6, in NF7. Venus features hundreds of times throughout the document as a place where there are some major science questions for planetary that we need to answer. Mm-hmm. That Vice wouldn't answer all of them, but would answer a bunch of them. I mean, there's still going to be stuff you need to be on the surface for. There's going to be stuff you're going to need rovers for. You're going to want to do sample analysis. You're going to, it's like anywhere. You're not going to answer it all in two or three missions. But the point is that by taking Vice out, that surprised everybody. Now, uh, the way NASA is doing it is that these are so-called community announcements. And they are ostensibly taking feedback from people. Uh, and boy, have we been trying to give them feedback. Uh, <laughs> running up until the end of October, because in November, the draft version of the AO, the announcement opportunity, the full parameterized call for New Frontiers 5 will be released. Now, it's the draft. The final will come out in November 2023. But because of how long it takes to do these proposals, whatever comes out in the draft AO in November is going to be they may they'll they always change stuff between the the draft and the final. But they even if they change the list, 
let's say they put Venus back in next year, it's too late. No yeah, NASA yeah. center has the time or the money or the people to, to develop a proposal in five months. Which means that whatever comes out in November is going to be the list for a new Frontiers 5. So for the past four weeks, me and many other people have been pushing NASA. We have been crying and cajoling and calling and emailing <laughs> uh, to, to try and, and emphasize to NASA, allow us to propose. We're not asking you to be pick, to pick us. We'll ask that in the proposal. Allow us to propose because the kinds of science you can do from this mission, and it's not just my mission, right? It's not just what Phantom could do, but it's the kind of science you can do from either on the surface or in the clouds is so important and speaks to such fundamental science questions as backed up by the new decadal survey, which I should point out takes this take, took, takes a, a different uh, tack, I guess, to the previous decadal surveys, which would go through the solar system, they would march, they would do Mercury, Venus, Mars. Right, 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 this yeah. one is all about atmospheres and surfaces. And what's really neat about that is you start to see the kind of common threads. A big thing of what I study is comparative planetology, and that's a big thing that features in the new decadal. So it just so happens that even if NASA were, so if NASA makes the argument, well, you know, we've picked three Venus missions or two and a half, we're, you know, we're not going to go back. Okay, but you haven't picked one for 40 years. So there's a bunch of compelling science to do. If they say, oh, it doesn't really matter about the target, it's more about the processes and the phenomena you study, well, then we can say, well, listen, Venus is like the go-to place for big picture questions. Mm -hmm. um, so this did take a lot of us by surprise. We're working really hard to to articulate to NASA reasons why they should undo this or, or, or settle on including VICE in the list of New Frontiers 5 missions. Um, that doesn't mean they're going to pick us. It just means that we will be able yeah, to, yeah, yeah. eligible to propose. <laughs> So, um, so can I can I push back on that a little bit and 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 challenge that? So, wouldn't it there be a wouldn't there be a, a line of reasoning that would make sense to say yes, we've got a lot of catching up to do, but like let's let these three missions go, get a bunch of data, and that's going to like really dramatically inform what our next big questions are in this in this place because like if I think about the the journey of of the Mars program like every mission has changed to what we oh, need you to bet. do for the next one oh right? you absolutely and so here's what and we have we have responded exactly we have tried to preempt that exact question it's a good question <laughs> okay good it turns out that some of the questions not some almost all the questions we have for the vice team right the in-situ team whether it's a lander or a balloon some of those questions go back to the 60s Mm -hmm. Most of them are from the 70s and 80s, some from the 90s, an increasing number from the last 10 years because they're tied to exoplanet atmospheres and the kinds of things we're beginning to measure with Webb and what that tells you in terms of being able to, what you see in a spectrum for an exoplanet to what's actually happening literally on the ground or in the atmosphere. None of the questions that VICE is asking is contingent on anything coming back from those new missions. Those new missions okay. are, going to, are going to herald a new era of what the hell is that thing? <laughs> Absolutely. But that won't mean that we don't have these questions to answer. We still have these questions to answer. Some of them, like, literally they go back to 1965. Carl Sagan had a paper in which he was pro proposing or, or hypothesizing about the fact that you could be habitable conditions in the middle, middle atmosphere. Right? What's the, what's the pH of the water there? Is there any bioavailable nutrients? Are there cycles of nutrients from volcanoes up to the middle atmosphere? What explains the, what's the, called the so-called uh, UV absorbers that we're seeing, you know, that we've been seeing for decades on telescopes on Earth? I mean, these are foundational questions, but no, we do not need to wait. Now, so there may be a view amongst people at headquarters to say, well, you just got a bunch of missions. You, you can't possibly have more questions you have. Wait until they come back in 10 years. And I'll say, no, my friends, we have questions that are decades old. We will have new ones, yes, and we'll bring them to you in 10 years. But these are questions we have had for decades. 
Let us well, go hopefully, now. Ho- hopefully, uh, Lori Glaze is, is listening. She's she's a Venus person, isn't she? She totes is a Venus her. person. I, I you know, yeah. uh, Laurie and, and, and Kurt Niebuhr is a project scientist for New Frontiers. They have very strict rules they have to follow in terms of how yeah, yeah. procurements work. And, <laughs> it's a and tough believe gig, me, yeah, yeah it, is, it is, right? And, <laughs> and believe me when I say that we collecting the community have been bending their ear. Um, but we have been trying to articulate both to them and to upper NASA management and, and, and NASA center management and the community at large. And I want to say this. I am, yes, heavily biased toward Venus. Like, I get that. I am not <laughs> an independent observer. But I, I will say this. There are some amazing science to do at Venus. And, and I am someone who publishes on bodies throughout the solar system. And I, and I don't consider myself as only a Venus scientist. I'm fascinated by topics. I see satellites and exoplanets and anywhere else you can think. I don't want to see our mission. And I'm trying hard not to market it as a Venus mission. It's an mm. atmosphere's mission. It's a habitability mission. It's a volatiles mission. It's a geophysics mission. If you happen to be interested in those topics, join us, work with us, tell us what data you need. It just so happens that Venus is the place you can go to answer a lot of these questions. And, and that's why I was so enthused by the new decadal survey, taking mm-hmm, that yeah. target agnostic view. If you're thinking it's time for a mission to X, and the Venus community at large has, has, has been guilty of this, that's not the right way of advocating for it. The right way of advocating for it somewhere is look at the science we can potentially gain here. And that's what we're trying to do. So I want to see a balanced portfolio as much as anyone, and possibly more than some, because I would like us to see more missions to the outer planets. They are hard. They are very far away. They are expensive. I want to see more missions to Mercury. But I know of the kind of science that you can answer at Venus. And I know the kinds of science we could answer with the balloon at Venus, whether it's ours or somebody else's. Let us propose to the New Frontiers 5 competition. Let us put in the proposal. You don't pick us fine. Give us actual feedback telling us where our weak spots are. So we try again for New Frontier 6. But give us the chance. Because if you don't, what that's telling the community is that NASA deems Venus science to be sort of done for the time being. Hmm. Regardless of what the new decadal says, regardless of what the Venus community is saying for 40 years, those questions don't matter that much. We're going to just tick you. You're good for the next while. Come back in 10 years. That's not a good message to send to a community where no. there's so much science they have to offer. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, so what can we look out for in the future then in terms of updates? This You said you've got some some technology updates coming down the pipe. And then right. We're we have technology for... updates that are going to come out describing what we've been doing this summer, building the tech. Um, the biggest thing is uh, if you if you are <laughs> if you find that I have I have motivated something in you and you're listening to this, um, you can go and email Kurt Niebuhr. You can go and, 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 and Google the New Frontiers 5 community mm-hmm. announcement and you can you can send your comments in. You, you know, please don't go take Venus out. Please tell them to put it back in. Uh, but you can send feedback in. They are open to community feedback. And then the next thing we're working on, or we're, we're, we're looking out for, is uh, we anticipate sometime in November, hopefully before Thanksgiving, the draft announcement opportunity for the New Frontiers 5 competition will come out, and it will contain the mission list. That will functionally be the mission list. If we're not on it, it'll be a real kick in the teeth. Because yeah, I think Venus yeah. is an enormous amount of offer. We'll, we'll go away, we'll lick our wounds, we'll come back, we'll try for NF6 under the assumption Venus is in NF6. But these competitions are held every five years. And it's a yeah, long time long, to long, long time apart, try right. to keep technology efforts going, to try and invigorate a science team and keep them enthused, many of whom are doing this for free. Um, so we're hoping that NASA decides, do you know what, we're going to go forward with Vice in the list. And again, to be clear, it doesn't mean they're going to pick us, it just means they're going to let us get in the playing field. Yeah. 
Well, Paul, thanks so much for, for sharing uh, this mission concept with us. It sounds super cool. And, uh, and for bringing some awareness to uh, uh, some, some stuff <laughs> happening good word with, about the, Venus. With, the, <laughs> with the announcements <laughs> of opportunities. So, um, yeah, we'll put the link in the show notes to, to you know, go and put your comments in. Because I know there are quite a few uh, planetary uh, scientists that listen to the show and, and people that are connected to it. So I know that... Uh, um, They'll, they'll be interested to to help out if they can. So, yeah. Awesome. Uh, thanks for sharing so much. This is great yeah, to talk well, to you. Thank you. Thank you for, we... for the soapbox. I could go around. Yeah. <laughs> I've been no for 25 problem. minutes. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, you never would have thought that the Mars podcast would have allowed the Venus soapbox. I, I, happen, I, I do admire that. So if I ever are. have a Venus podcast, I promise I will return the favor. You can come and wax the circle about Mars. <laughs> I'll come talk about how great it is. We can see all the rocks. <laughs> I, I, you know, I do, I do, I do get rover envy. I have to tell you, I do. I'm looking at those. Pictures. I bet you do. I have to be fair. Look, I do Mars research too. I have grad students too who do Mars or PhD. Mars is an amazing world. I would just like to see the kind of same attention Mars has gotten. I'd like it to be distributed a bit more. That's all. But Mars is a terrific place, and you know, here at WashU, actually, we. There's, been, there's a long heritage of folks here like Ray Arvidsson who were heavily involved in a lot of the rover mm -hmm. missions. We have a scale, full-scale model of one of the Mer rovers in our hallway. I haven't broken it yet. So that just tells you that I clearly on some level, I do like Mars. I think Scott Hubbard's from Missouri, isn't he? I think that's I think a, he's a too thing. Actually, so. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Paul, thanks so much for hanging out with us today. My pleasure, Jake. Thanks very much. That's it for this week, Martians. Huge thanks to Paul for sharing this important message and teaching us about his very cool mission concept. If you like what I do, please consider becoming a patron. For just $5 a month, you help keep me employed as an independent journalist, and you help me keep the ads off this show. For your support, you'll get access to the Off-Nominal Discord, a place whose use and function are continuously growing and whose membership is rife with really great supporters, all looking to talk more about space, learn what's going on, and engage with it in any way they can. Head over to wemartians.com support to learn more and join us. Have a great week and at Aries Martians. The We Martians is an independent, listener-funded podcast created by me, Jake Robbins, on planet Earth. You can reach us at info at wemartians.com or on Twitter at we underscore Martians.